Welcome everyone to Teen Talks Wellness to our very first episode. Um, we are your hosts. I'm Brunella Escate. I'm Ella Jones. I'm Katwan Wims. For this episode, we'll be talking about school meal policy, school meal funding, and the policies and history surrounding school food. We will also be interviewing a local expert who works with school meals in North Carolina. So many people might be asking, well, why should students care about school meals? And the reason why is because we are directly impacted by these school meals. We are usually fed at like 10 a.m. And we're for, not we're like, we have to keep on going through school until three, that's five hours. And if we're not fed substantially enough when we deal those five hours with being hungry, and that could impact your academic learning because instead of focusing on the content um, in class, we were focused more on like, hey, I'm kind of hungry right now. And for some people, that is their only source of food for the day or their main source of food for the day. And why should other people care? Well, what we do in the schools academically can reflect in the community. So many schools are rated based on the average scores of students, whether you're an A plus school, a C school, a B school, like depending on that, that reflects on the community and how well the community does for their educational learning. And so during this episode, we would like to encourage you all to think about your own school meals policies and experiences growing up. Were they similar to ours or did they change? Yeah, so my experience with school meals didn't really start until middle school. My whole way through elementary school, I went somewhere that provided meals, but my parents packed my lunch, which was the best thing ever because I had M&Ms and the kids that got school food didn't. But um, whenever I got to middle school, my school, like the entire school, became a school that provided free meals. And so I began having them. And it's always been good to me. I've always eaten it. I've never really been the person that's like, they're gross. No, I'll eat it. It's good food. It's warm. It's convenient. Um, But I'm not a huge meat eater. I wouldn't call myself a vegetarian, but I don't really choose to have it. Um, And a lot of the meals that they give us, you know, that's your protein. It's a part of your little, like, plate. It's a factor. And so it has meat. And so I pick around it. Um, And granted, it's free and it's there every day, but it would leave me hungry by the end of the day. Um, and so as convenient and as helpful as it is to have it there, it's not always the most filling meal. I had experience with school meals by by, by during elementary, middle, high, and high school. I brought my money with me just in case I want to get an extra, extra snack or drink or food. Just so when it comes towards lunch, so that way I can make sure I... I'll stay safe and I'll make sure you'll hold me for before the rest of class. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, I agree. The school meals were they were stability, they were like kind of like they weren't comfort, but they were like we knew that they were gonna be there every single day. And sure they weren't the best foods. Like I remember like you just try to make it look more appealing or just give it a little bit of flavor. But I mean it did do its function as in like tidying us over until we got home so i would i would say that it's it's been a pretty good experience okay school meals are such an integral part of many student days can you all share how school meals have met or not met your expectations yeah like i said um they didn't always appeal to me as a i guess vegetarian without being a vegetarian but I also noticed in middle school, 
and this is a huge problem within itself that we could dedicate a whole nother podcast to, but whenever my friends, little middle school girls would try to eat healthier, especially with the emergence of social media, they would move away from school food meals and they would start bringing their own. And they'd bring things that had more spinach and all the greens and all the color, whereas school food meals are kind of appealing to the masses. So it's your hamburger and your tater tots. Yeah, I agree. Like, um, if they met my expectations, yes, in a way, like once again, like they are, they were stable, they were there every day. So we we knew what to expect. And plus, the menu that we would know, like, right, Monday would be this day, Tuesday. So, like, we did know what was going to be expected of. So, in that case, it did meet our expectations. But in terms of like dietary restrictions, or as Ella mentioned, like the having trying to be more healthier, school meals didn't really encourage that. And we feel that maybe they should like offer more healthier options other than just like a yogurt bag. I think this school has someone met my expectations because see, because they provide daily parts of the healthy foods such as fruits, vegetables, grains, milk, and dairy, etc. So so, so I really didn't make, expect my expectation, but in the case I get extra, I'll pay with money. So, so I met my expectation. So a lot of the examples we just talked about are things that we have experienced in our 16, 17, 18 years of life. But let's look at some history of school meals. Our sources will be in our show notes. Don't worry. A few cities in America were providing meals to students in the late 19th century, but it was not until the mid-1940s that Congress passed the National School Lunch Act, signed into law by Harry Truman. Congress saw the benefit of these programs by other cities in lowering child hunger rates and helping farmers. In the 1960s, the Black Panther Party began serving school breakfast to their students. School officials were noticing a huge difference in how their students were showing up to school. While the USDA was exploring school breakfast programs in the mid-1960s as well, the program really rose to popularity in the early 1970s, around the time that the Black Panther programs were dismantled. The school breakfast program was permanently authorized in 1975. The school lunch program shifted in the 1980s when the federal school lunch budget and lunch portions decreased. Fewer students were eligible for free lunch and some regulations changed nutritional standards. School meal policies shifted again with the Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act, which allowed the U.S. Department of Agriculture to change school meal standards, slowly gain funding, and reduce the number of students that go without lunch. So now that we've done a very, very brief overview about the history of school meals, we will dive into how it is funded today. Right, so let's get a better understanding about funding. The following information comes from a 2022 article by NNC. Um, child nutrition departments operate and are funded separately from actual schools themselves. The two primary sources of funding are federal reimbursements and student payments. The federal reimbursements come mainly from the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and they are required to meet certain nutritional standards. All expenses, including staff and equipment, are covered by these reimbursements of less than $4 per meal. The reimbursement amounts change depending on whether the meal was free, reduced, or full price. Under the National School Lunch Program, $3.90 was reimbursed for free lunch, $3.49 was for reduced, and $0.50 for full price. Additionally, the USDA gives commodity funding through the foods of school programs to to, to child nutrition departments for commodity foods. 
Examples of commodity foods include beef, chicken, turkey, cheese, and apples. And finally, every state with federal with federally funded lunch programs is required to match a certain amount of reimbursements based on a certain rate, but it varies from state to state. Now that we learned a little bit about funding, let's go into an interview with someone who has a bit more experience than us. Ruth McDowell, a student nutrition director for Edgecombe County Schools and the current president of School Nutrition Association of North Carolina. Thank you so much for joining us. You are welcome. Thank you for having me. <laughs> All right. So our first question is like very simple, but how did you get involved with school nutrition? Okay. The way I got involved in school nutrition, I was working in a small county called Washington County. And I was working as a 4-H agent there, okay, uh, working with youth development and working with kids and still uh, working with uh, nutrition. So the school nutrition director there um, decided to retire after 35 years of service. So the superintendent there saw what kind of things we were doing in the uh, county with kids and he just liked how I was so involved and active with him that he asked me if I would consider applying for the child nutrition director's job. Had never done child nutrition directing before, but I felt like I like a challenge. So I felt like I'd be able to do it. So uh, I applied for the position and um, I, I got the position. So that's how I actually got involved uh, in child nutrition. That's very interesting. I, that's actually really cool. <laughs> Yeah, because working as a 4-H agent, I loved, I just love working with kids. But, you know, we never know uh, when our season is up with something, and it just happened to be up for me at that time. Not expecting it, but willing to take on a challenge for something new to grow. When you were younger, did you, like, see yourself doing something with school nutrition? Or was it, like, something, like, when you went to college and you were like, I like it, and you went into it? No. In high school. I sewed all the time. I made clothes for my classmates, made clothes for my sisters and brothers. So when I went to college, I wanted to be a home economist. That was my goal. But when I graduated college, those positions, they were not available, were not open. You had to wait years before you could get one of those positions. So that was my ultimate goal in college was to work as a home economist. Uh, with an ag extension agent. And my goal was fulfilled because I did work with ag extension, but just not in as a home economist, as a 4-H agent. <laughs> Would you like to share some like experiences that you've had personally when growing up uh, with school meals? Okay, when I was in school, now uh, you don't know how, but I'm, I was in school a long, 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 long time ago, okay? But when I was in school, now we still had fried chicken, we had pizza. Uh, one of my favorites was soup and grilled cheese sandwiches. We would go through the cafeteria line and we would get the food. We had a farmer that would come by and we had to separate our scraps so that he could feed his hogs those scraps when we emptied our containers at school. We also ate out of the real place. Right now we use styrofoam, knowing that's not good, but there are reasons for that. But we, I, the idea of eating out of a styrofoam plate and using plastic forks were not thought of back there then. So we ate out of real place and we served real food. And um, like I said, we had a farmer that used our scraps. Right now they do 
uh, this day and time, I'm, I think it's like composting maybe that they do. But back there then, we start, we let our farmers pick it up. So you guys had your food, like you guys had your food like imported locally with local farmers. A lot of it was, but a lot of our foods were USDA commodities. We used a lot of USDA commodity foods then. We have a lot now, but we used more back there then. Our fried chicken was fresh chicken from USDA. Now we don't use fresh chicken. We had it comes to us already uh, roasted. So that's the difference too. We had a lot, lot more fresh food. We cooked a lot more from scratch. We don't do a lot of scratch cooking right now, but that's what we did as I was when I was growing up. Yeah, like I, I think you've seen like how our school food evolved now. Do you, would you would you say it's like a good way, or do you want like wish it would go back to how it used to be? Okay. I will be very honest. I wish it would go back, but but with the staffing issues that we're having, I mean, I don't see how we would be able to. If we could hire more staff, we could do more scratch cooking, it would be a healthier option for our students. It really right would. now, we yeah, we use the we use a lot of uh processed foods now, but it's because it's fast. And we got to get it out to the kids in a hurry. And we don't have but two or three people to get 400 meals out sometimes. So that has a lot to do with scratch cooking. But I wish we could go back to scratch cooking. Yes, I do. So like when you, when you mentioned you mentioned staffing issues, would you say that like has always been a thing or like just like when the pandemic hit or it's just like. No, it's it's been an issue since the pandemic. Uh, we were fully staffed right now. I have 19 positions open and it's where people just decided not to come back or either they got jobs other places that where they uh, made more money, but we just have not seen the people that, and, and, and I don't even have a pool of applicants for those 16 positions that I have open. That's, that's very interesting. But that's the issue. That's an issue across the state in child nutrition, not just Edgecombe County. I mean, even in, in the private sector, there's an issue with staffing shortages. Now, one thing that increased the pay, we went up to $15 an hour for everybody in our child nutrition program, or the minimum is $15 an hour. And that cost our budgets also. So on top of increasing the $15 an hour, hoping that would get us more employees and also on top of increased food costs, can you imagine the effect that it is gonna have on our budgets at the end of the year? Now we've gotten a lot of uh, relief from some programs or some grants where we can buy more fresh fruits and vegetables, more uh, equipment. Uh, and that's going to help us a lot too. But that's another thing uh, with the scratch cooking. Most of our schools do not have the equipment where we can scratch cook. Yeah, now that we're like talking about like what about challenges you guys are facing with like staffing, is there like any like other challenges you see in school or child nutrition directors facing as like they attempt to feed the kids? Yes, yes, we have a lot of challenges. Mostly, uh, we have supply chain issues as well. Okay, for example, when the pandemic first hit, and even now, sometimes they do not have lunch trays. Okay, lunch trays this summer, we had to go, thank goodness, for Sam's Club and other small uh, places that we could pick up uh, products and everything from that we could go and buy these items. But what industry was doing was catering to the supermarkets and places like that that needed foods. Not to say they forgot about child nutrition, but we were not getting a lot of those supplies because they had to supply other places. So we were having to go to smaller places to try and get 
uh, some of the things we needed. Every week we have what is called a short list from our uh, supplier. For example, this week they didn't have any pancake sausage on a stick. That happens to be one of the items that kids really like. They wanted to substitute a sausage biscuit, but we had a sausage biscuit on Monday. So I said, well, can we get a chicken biscuit? They didn't have any chicken biscuits. So we could, it is just very challenging trying to weekly look at our list of substitute items from our vendor. And, and I, we, I mean, it's a trickle down effect for everybody. We don't blame industry. Because if the manufacturers are not making it, then we can't bring it into the system. Manufacturers are having staffing shortages as well. So they're not producing this as much as they used to produce. So we're not able to get a whole lot of items that we, we used to could get. Absolutely. So what, what like in your personal opinion, like just like in a professional way, what would you say is like the main reason of like why the supply chain changed? <laughs> the like giving it to like supermarkets and giving it to like stores other than like schools like why would you think that change happened i still think it's because of them, them not having enough staff now in the beginning a lot of our people were out due to covid okay they were getting covid or their family members were getting covid or their children were getting covid a lot of our employees didn't come back because they chose to stay home with their children they did not want their children to be uh, affected with getting COVID if they came to work and was exposed to all the other employees. So, and I think the economy has a lot to do with, you know, cost has gone up a lot. Uh, even when they substitute our items, you know, that we have to get, those items sometimes cost us double the price. But we, we're going to feed kids. We are going to do what we need to do to feed kids. So even with those costs being higher, uh, our district has said, you know, feed kids, they'll pick up costs if we go in the red. So, um, but of course we try not to do that, but just know we're, our ultimate goal is to feed kids. So that's what we're going to do. I, I, I used to volunteer at an elementary school and I would like help out kindergartners and they'd like, they have some, like they just forgot a drink and they don't have enough, like their, their meal that their mom made them. And the schools would be like, yeah, you have to get a whole meal. You have to get the like the milk, lunch, like vegetable, everything. And you have to, like, even if you don't eat it, you have to get all of it. Now, you don't have to get all of it. They had to get at least three. And, and that's a misconception of some of our teachers, especially with the little ones. We have to offer five items and they have to pick up three. We have to serve orange, uh, dark green, um, a dry bean once a week. Uh, to our students, they don't have to pick up all five, but one of those three has to be a vegetable or a fruit, which most of the time children don't want to eat those vegetables unless they're french fries. So, but they have to pick up a vegetable or a fruit in order for it to meet the stand nutrition standards. And this is for lunch. Now at breakfast, they have to pick up three out of the four, but one still has to be a fruit at breakfast. They have to pick up a fruit, whether they want it or not. They have to pick it up in order for us to get reimbursed for that meal. And now they're even going to be more stringent with the nutrition standards. So, I mean, we we don't know what we're going to do. Thank you for clearing that up. I did not know that. <laughs> Except that now we do offer, I will say, a lot of my high school students, I don't know if you do, but they love our chef salads. If they don't want any of the other foods, chef salads are available to them. And we offer those on a daily basis. So we serve a lot of chef salads to high school students. 
All right. So now like talking about like, more things like things like the public should know. What um what do you want the students and the general public to know or learn about the school meals and how can they be more involved? Okay, one way, you know, I just want parents to encourage their kids to eat breakfast and lunch at school. Okay. Hopefully there is something on that plate that they will want. Now, a lot of the foods were going in the trash can, but I think their palates have gotten used to the taste of that whole grain and some of the other things, the lower sugar, the dry bean, the things like that, that we're putting there now. They're accepting that because we didn't think they would ever accept that food, but they, they are accepting it now. So we don't want them to go backwards. We want our kids to continue to eat. We want our kids to be healthy. We want them to thrive. We want them to be ready to learn when they go sit in the classroom. All right, thank you. Like that's such good. That's such good advice. Like I, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Is there anything else you'd like to share? Um, no. Now I want that. I want people to know. Okay, we are here to serve children. Okay, we want. We don't want just want our children to come in the cafeteria, and just get their meal and throw it in the trash can. We want them to come in the cafeteria and serve them foods that we know they're going to eat and enjoy and that they're going to like. Uh, we also, as a matter of fact, uh, and, and we would like, want parents to know, we're hoping to start what is called a nutrition advisory council. I need help from my students to tell me what foods are acceptable and which ones are not. We do taste tests, encourage the kids that when we bring in a food to taste test, please volunteer and taste that item for us. Because like I said, we're here for them and we want to serve foods that we know that they will eat. Although I will say personally, I've never seen a taste test in one of my schools, but I'm a trust that they're out there. <laughs> oh my goodness. I do them all the time here. <laughs> but thank you so much. <laughs> you are welcome. It was nice meeting you. Now we have a better understanding as school meals as a whole, and we have like a nice, very thorough interview. Um, how does this, how, how has this impacted your view on everything that's going on? Well, I thought it was super, super interesting to hear your conversations with Ruth McDowell and how she feels like it's an issue or the issue of making school nutrition equitable how it applies to a lot of people outside of her realm of expertise and how it really is a community effort. She straight up said students are not doing enough. And I think that that's something to learn from is to just hear that emotion in school meals need to be reformed and the positions need to be filled and there needs to be allocations made to incite people to go to those positions and incite attention to school meals. Like it's something that is an ongoing process that needs attention. I think that that's something that is definitely pivotal to all of our perspectives and all of our mindsets regarding how school meals function. For me, I wanted to make sure that I want to talk to staff to provide different cultures of food, including healthy ones. One thing that shocked me the most in the interview was learning more about the staffing issues and the supply chains. Like, 
and like, okay, I know like everywhere sounds like, oh yeah, there aren't people working, but I guess I didn't really make that connection yet. That's like, oh, that that's no, like no place is getting enough workers. And like, uh, when she mentioned that she had a, like 19 positions opened and no one like applying for them. So I mean, it's like the other workers there probably have to like fill in eventually and have like double their workload and trying to get everything out and like 400 meals for like every single school. And I was generally shocked by that information. I think, and this is something that is reflected in one of my conversations in a later interview, that there really needs to be a stressed importance on students' involvement in their school meals. I think that it is super, super important that schools form student-led coalitions or student-led initiatives to really to look at the variety of the meals they're getting and to take control of it. I mean, we say it all the time, but we're the ones that make change. We take pride in that. So that's something that we are able to do. We are able to engage and we are able to learn more about it and then in turn, do something about it. All right, thank you everyone for listening. Um, I hope you guys learned something, took something out of this um, and we hope to see you next time. Stay safe. Teens Talk School Meal Policies was written by Brunella Escate, Ella Jones, Kentwan Williams, and Kirsten Blackburn. This episode was produced by Brunella Escate, Bevelyn Oka, and Kirsten Blackburn. Editing for this episode was done by Kirsten Blackburn. The Teens Talk Wellness Podcast is supported by the Farm to School Initiative at the Center for Environmental Farming Systems and the Farm to School Coalition of North Carolina. Thanks to generous funding and support from the Blue Cross Blue Shield Foundation of North Carolina, Teens Talk Wellness is able to support the professional development of our student podcasters. You can learn more about Teens Talk Wellness by visiting www.farmtoschoolcoalitionnc.org slash program slash student dash wellness dash project.